Why don't we all stand up for the public reading of God's Word? We're going to be reading from the second Timothy. Uh, the entire first chapter is only 18 verses. I'll have my designated response reader ready. I'll be reading uh, verse 1. You all read verse 2 along with him. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed as, as a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good de deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of one Zephorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. All together now? May, May the Lord, Lord grant that, that we will find mercy from, from the Lord, Lord on that day. You know, know very well in how many, many ways, ways he helped me in Ephesus. Won't you join me in prayer? Dear precious Father, we thank you so much for gathering us here on Sunday afternoon. What a beautiful day it is. Lord, we come to cherish you and to praise you for all that you are. We ask, Lord, as we hear your message today, that your preacher will preach it with the, your spiritual power and conviction, and that it will really light that fire that we can fan into flame, so that on the, until the day you come, we'll be able to thrive in the faith and be willing to suffer for the faith and the truth, and that this empowering will really show as a true love that shines in the world. We ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be right and pleasing before you. This what we all pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. Um, before, we, before I start, why don't we greet one another, say hello. How was, how was Valentine's Sunday last Sunday? Hello, hello. Uh, last Sunday, we finished uh, Luke's epic account of the book of Acts of the Apostles, which is uh, sometimes dubbed as 
acts of the Holy Spirit. And during the period of our studies for a year and a half, uh, the only break that we took was for about seven weeks when we studied the first letter of uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy uh, because his name came across in our study of Acts. And now, as we uh, have concluded the book of Acts, I thought that it would be good to get into the second letter of Timothy because on the timeline of Acts, this is actually kind of uh, around the same time towards the conclusion of the book of Acts. And a few years later is when uh, Paul has to write this letter. And while studying Acts, we got, we got to take a peek of just who this Timothy is. We got a little background on on who he was. He was a student of Paul since a very young age, and uh, later on he was appointed as pastor to Ephesus. He was sent to Ephesus on a mission to pastor that church. And in piecing together the puzzle of the rest of the letters, it is very helpful for us to maybe conclude the study, or maybe start a whole new study in the, in the second letter to Timothy. Now, uh, biblical scholarship is not in agreement, but uh, if you are judging the letter, if you like, kind of look at the logic of the contents of the of the letter, and then uh, and all the probability, the letter was written in Rome. After remember, remember Paul had taken that long journey, the tumultuous journey on the ocean, and he finally got to Rome, and then he got to preach. It's after that, so it's somewhere between like 63 and 66 A.D. And it is most probably his last letter that he writes on record. So you will catch uh, from the rest of the letter after we are doing the study, as we approach the end of the letter, you will know, you will kind of get a feeling that Paul is aware that his earthly ministry was going to soon come to an end. In all likelihood, shortly after writing his letter, he was going to die. And uh, so even though it was most probably written during his second imprisonment in Rome, for some reason, it's not included as one of the four prison letters. I don't know if you notice, this is kind of an important trivia for you guys to understand. There's a four prison letters that Paul wrote. One is uh, Philippians, the other is Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. But if you were to ask me, I would definitely include the second letter of Timothy. So there were five prison letters, not four. And Paul begins his letter by calling attention to his consecration. That means that he is devoted from the moment when he met Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus, and he had, Jesus had handpicked him, basically, rest of his life is pretty, pretty much predetermined. The course is set, and he, he is just uh, uh, reminding uh, Timothy in this letter. In writing this letter, he's fulfilling the, the, the mandate of none other than God, the maker of heavens and the earth, made possible through Christ Jesus. The first thing that I would like to point out uh, our attention to in our reading is how Paul recalls the history of their relationship. Paul and Timothy, they go back a long ways. So while Paul's journey is coming to an end, he's recalling to a time when he remembers this young Timothy who he has groomed to be the next, maybe the, uh, the one to carry on the torch of the faith in that area of Ephesus. It takes a, I'm sure you would agree with me that it takes some time to get to know somebody. These days, we live in such a culture of a superficial relationships that we may mistake the number of our Facebook friends as actual friends. I'm sure there's none of you guys would, would actually be thinking that, but, I mean, we live with that kind of superficiality these days. 
it is likely that if you, like if you have like a thousand Facebook friends, some of you are very popular online, you have like a thousand Facebook friends, it is likely that you actually know in person about a hundred of them, like you know a tenth, right? And then if you ask the, from that group, maybe ten really know you for who you really are. So deep relationships have become pretty scarce in our modern day, but at least in our churches, especially house churches, this should not be the case. We should really know each other and what's going on. When we do our sharing, life sharing, we should try to be able to share more than we're comfortable with so that we really get to know each other as we really are. It turns out that Paul knew Timothy from his youth. You know, every now and then, I don't know if you guys know Mark from the youth group. You guys all know Mark, right? Mark grew up in this church when he was, since he was a little baby. So uh, he comes into my office on Sundays and he chats with me before when I'm like, you know, trying to, trying to uh, go through the last passes of the sermon manuscript. And um, he comes in because he's sort of a lead servant here now. I remember when he came, when I first met him a couple of years ago, he was definitely smaller, shorter, and he didn't know how to play the guitar. He was like struggling with just one chord but now he's leading praise. He's like putting together. He's a man behind the scenes when it comes to like making sure that the youth group service goes online. And sometimes when the internet goes down or there's some other kind of a equipment failure, I man, he takes that really personally, you know. And uh, and as we're chatting on numerous occasions, the conversation turns to the, when he was younger, when he was little, he would visit Pastor Lee's office. And Pastor Lee would be the pastor that gives him candy. And he would like prompt him, you know, oh, Moksanin Popoejo, Popoejo, give me a kiss. And then so we talk about those things, right? So the church is one of those uh, unique ground space where we can really uh, have, our, have our beings anchored by the history of shared memories together. We kind of have our shared memories and then we grow in the church together. And that's what the that's what Paul is calling attention to in this very personal letter. And uh, the point that I want to also make is that Timothy was known. He was known by Paul. And this knowledge of Paul, uh, Timothy, was not just uh, you know, limited to him, but it's traceable to his mother and grandmother. So when Paul is able to vouch for Timothy's faith, it's because Paul not only knew Timothy, but he knew Eunice his mother, and Lois, his grandmother. He invites Timothy to jog their memory in the very brief letters, you know, very brief sentence to those moments when there was sincerity in their faith and it was showed through tears. I don't know how many times, when was the last time you guys had a kind of a sharing where you were choked up to tears or where you were crying? Somebody was sharing about how touched they were with Jesus and then like, you know, they get all choked up and they they start getting teary-eyed. The eyes well up and then you're all kind of... I mean, that's what is supposed to happen in our house churches. Of course, we can't force them, but that is what's meant to happen as your bonds become more and more genuine. And this bond that we talk, talk about, the Christian brotherhood, is actually thicker than blood, you know? Because when we, uh, when we die, when we move on to the next life, we still see each other. There are people that are blood ties. If you don't have the faith, if, you're not, if you don't receive the Lord, you will not share in that eternal life. Timothy's faith, uh, which came from grand, his grandmother Lois and then his mother Eunice, uh, 
they grew, he grew up in like a, maybe a single mother family. Um, we know through history that, in uh, also scripture, that Timothy had a Greek father. His mother was Jewish. So if, if his father was not a believer, which appear, appears to be the case since he's not mentioned, uh, they might have been unequally yoked. Timothy's dad might have been an unbeliever. Timothy's mom a believer. I don't know if you have seen or if you have actually known cases like this in our very church. You could definitely presume that there might have been a, a no small amount of dysfunction in that family. And uh, it's quite possible that he might have passed on, that Timothy's dad might have passed on, so she might have actually been a widow. Paul doesn't mention any of those details, but... He focuses on this point on the matter at hand. Paul acknowledges Timothy as a vessel of something so precious, this faith that had been handed to him by God, much in the same way that it was handed to his ancestors. What we cherish in the legacy in our history, when we look back, when we take a look back, it's because all the giants of faith that we look, they look we esteem very highly, they, they had their faithfulness to show for it. And then we want to receive that legacy. We want to continue that legacy and then pass it on to the next generation. So the first section of the text, I think is pretty obvious. It's, it's showing that, if you go to the slide, David, faith is transmitted through relationships. Through relationships. Although in the case of Timothy, Paul was clearly the teacher. Um, Paul was the, the one that was learned. He knew scripture very well and he passed all that knowledge on to him. Paul goes much further than just teacher-student uh, relationship. He says that Timothy, to him, Tim, to Timothy, he was a spiritual father. He calls him his son, right? We know that Paul had a long list of people. Whenever he writes his letters, he writes a long list of names that he's thankful to because they were close enough, that they helped each other out. But in this case, Timothy is singled out as, as his son, my, my dear son, he says. Never mind that he had his own Greek biological father. To Paul, Timothy was his son. And we read this letter as a third party. We read it as a, as a, we're witnesses as we're reading this letter as third party bystanders between two people, between Paul and Timothy, right? And there's other ways of reading this book. You could read it as, you know, uh, maybe from, from the point of Paul's view, what do you concern yourself with when you're looking back at someone who will carry the torch of truth on behalf, on behalf of yourself and all the other believers? He is writing this letter as a gesture. Now what I've been doing, I want you to, I want you to carry on with this mandate, this mission of God. As the older teacher and a father figure, what would your farewell message include? That's what we're reading here in the Second Timothy. And another way we can read it is as a recipient. If you were Timothy, if you were the young guy who wants to take the kernel, the, kernel, the, the gems of wisdom from, from him, from the very depths of his soul, uh, as Timothy, what words, what, were the, what would be the contents of this letter that we're reading that would light your fire, so to speak? In the Western culture, we sort of lack this relationship. We don't acknowledge it as much. I don't know how many of you guys remember your teachers that goes, uh, goes far, as far back as grade school. Are there teachers that you're thankful to, whatever they have taught you? In the Eastern culture, the relationship between a teacher and a student was a cherished, cherished thing. 
I don't know so much these days in Korea, modern day Korea, that has been lost, but in the olden days, in the old school days, the teacher-student uh, relationship was very, very important. Paul shows to Timothy how much he meant, means to him now, and keeping with all the context, all of this is within the context of faith transmission. What is the most important thing that Paul wants to address here is his faith and his love for God. He wants to make sure that Timothy has this. Um, in fact, there are opportunities when they're given to us, me as a congregation, me and you guys as a congregation, in this present context. You will never really understand how much Jesus means to me personally if you've never gotten to know me. If you're given, given a chance to meet with me on person, or if you have anything that's bothering you, you're always, I'm always taking you, ready to take you with open arms so that we could share these things. But if we distance ourselves from each other, especially when dealing with the uh, things that matters to us, that matters to us the most, uh, if we're distancing with each other, with each, from each other, we're going to most likely miss the point. Uh, so when I invite you, whether it's individually or even when we open up a class, you know, pretty soon we're gonna, Pastor Daniel and I, we're gonna do a, a series of courses regarding the membership of the church. These are times when we're gonna really want to know what is NBC really about? What is NBC ESC really about? What is it about? Unless have you made the time to to make yourself available and to make it your priority in your life, aside from your work, your jobs, and you and your uh, schoolwork. Uh, you're not going to really get to know why the Lord has led you to this place, in this space and in time. After Paul thanks God for, for the sincere faith that was in Timothy, that he was able to recognize and to praise, he coaches him on the essentials. If we go to verse 6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Just what did Timothy receive from Paul and that through the laying on one of his hands? I mean, I don't know if this is some one of the if if this is something that we do typically in a Baptist church. The laying on of hands is not very common. This is more practiced in the more we just have two visitors from Pentecostal tradition. Like the laying on of hands is 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 like the spiritual stuff that's being transmitted onto you because of this relationship that is. Um, that is fostered, that God, is, God has placed you in this chain of command where someone who is older and more seasoned and experienced in the faith and has more experience of God himself wants to be able to give you some of that, you know, the, the power. Like back when you refer back to, when you refer back to Old Testament, Elijah the prophet, who had done crazy amount of miracles, his disciple, Elisha, says, you know, as he's, leaving, as, he, as he's leaving with the chariots of fire into heaven, what do you want me to do for you? He says, oh, please, I would like to have twice the anointing that you had. Well, you're asking a pretty difficult thing from me, but in fact, if you see me as you, as, as you look up, if you see me going into the heaven in the chariot, then it will be given to you. And then later on, when you do actually count the number of miracles that Elisha gets done, is exa exactly twice as much as what Elijah did. So it is a tradition that we are sometimes shy from, especially because of the physical distance imposed by the, the coronavirus pandemic, this is really how Timothy received the Holy Spirit's power. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't receive the Holy Spirit because I lay hands on you. That's not how it is. You receive that by your faith. But 
the transmission of the power, that, that, that qualitative thing that Paul possessed was going to be handed on and passed on to Timothy. And, uh, and this power, it includes love and self-discipline. Have you guys had those days when you felt like you were lacking in love? You felt kind of dry in your heart? Like you want, you know that the mandate is to love God and love one another, but there are those days when you are, when you feel like you're journeying through an arid, very dry desert out there, right? But look, look at what it says here. Uh, this is something that was received by, by Timothy, and uh, Paul is able to say, for the spirit of God, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. And what kind of power are we talking about? We're talking about a power that has, stand, that has a stand above shame. In case of Paul, there's something that could have been kind of shameful to always be constantly in chains, right? It's this chronic case of being a jailbird throughout the, you know, for the gospel. And the irony is that both uh, in the past and during Paul's time and even today, the gospel has been ridiculed by the world, by social conventions. The powers of the world looked down upon the message of Christ. When, even during uh, Paul's time, when he was preaching the, the gospel to the Greeks, they were, his gospel is contending against these powerful gods like Zeus and, and Apollos to proclaim a God that, that took on a weakness, you know, the, the, the kind of frailty to be able to be handed over to other human beings to, to, to impel them on a cross and to receive that kind of abuse. It was not an appealing message to a lot of sensibilities of that time. His death on the cross elicited contempt. They would make fun of him. And in the eyes of many, it was just not, it was not going to be accepted. But, but, to those who are being saved, to those who are being saved, the, the image of the Son of God being, being crucified, it produces in us a contrition of heart. It moves something in us that was immovable before. The hardness disappears. We, we, we get inside our souls a newfound remorse. Earlier today, uh, Pastor Daniel was preaching about Zacchaeus, who upon seeing Jesus as he climbed up of the tree, and he saw, he, he saw Jesus advancing. And he, from that one instance, when Jesus asked him, I need to st- spend the night with you tonight, he says, I will give up to half of what I have, and then four times as much from if I had ever stolen anything, taken anything in the wrongful way. Right, it, it changes. It changes us in our heart, in our souls, and uh, and there's that that lasting humility upon gazing upon the, the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a lasting humility that liberates our souls into a whole new existence. Born again. That's what it means to be born again. When you when you when you take the the, the crucified Christ into your heart, and then you accept Him and receive Him as your Lord, you become a new creature under heaven, unto heaven, eternally. We often forget that uh, the, with the grace of God, He also confers to us His power. It's His grace and it's also His power. Paul encourages Timothy to join him, uh, join with him in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So this is uh, leading us to the second point. The suffering, if you'll go to David, second, second slide. Suffering is a kind of glue in relationships. Suffering is a kind of glue in relationships. In, uh, in seminary, they call this the theology of suffering. 
And I remember when I went to my first mission journey, uh, the pastor that was leading that mission, I was a brand new Christian. I didn't know anything about Jesus, nothing about the Bible. But I remember going to the journey. It was 10 days. It was not, it was not really hard. And uh, it, was, it was consciously that way. Like uh, he had his own theology. He said, mission is not suffering. We should not, we should not, we should not require that suffering be there to, in order for, for, we to, for we to call it mission. So the theology of suffering has become an unpopular teaching, especially when we're looking at the culture here in North America, when we have turned the gospel into our personal health and wealth, right? Now, when we turn the gospel into about our personal well-being and, and our health and wealth, this, this actually has implications. If you are not prosperous, if things are going wrong for you, if you had a bad week and something bad happened to you, that makes us think like we're, we're doing something wrong in the faith. Like we're not believing correctly, right? It doesn't fly very well when our very own Lord is exalted. When he's exalted, he's actually lifted up to suffer on the cross. That's his high seat of priority on the cross. It is his suffering that connects his sinless being into the rest of humanity that suffers because of sin. I'll say that one more time. It is his suffering that connects his sinless being with the rest of humanity that suffers because of sin. Jesus could not sidestep that suffering. You know what he said? He says that the disciple not, is not above his master. You know, a student is not above his teacher. The difference for those, who are, for those of us who are being saved, we're willing to take up the suffering for truth. Whereas those who are not saved might prefer to evade consequences for sin even. Maybe even seek reward in doing wrong. You know, people that are not saved, they want to continue doing the wickedness because there's something, something to gain from that. Those of us who are being saved, even if we are suffering, well, we're willing to do it because it's for the truth. That's a huge difference. That's a huge divide in the reality that we, we, we share in this, in, this, in this space and time. Jesus suffered for our sins. And if there should remain suffering for his disciples, rejoice that we get to partake in what purifies us. If there's some suffering in our lives, that's not something to complain about. It's something to actually cherish and uphold as a gift from God. Now, living in the Orange County area in the United States, it's a very boastful thing for me to say, you know, embrace suffering. But nowadays... I don't know if I could, if I should say this in front of other people. There, you guys are all young, younger than me, so I can say this. But uh, I can't say this in front of older people. These days, for some reason, I'm having all these aches and pains in my joints and my body. And I go, oh, dear Lord. Getting up out of the bed, bed becomes really, like, stiff and difficult. And I'm wondering to myself, oh, Lord, what's happening? You know, it's just a reality. When you're hitting the late 40s, going into the 50s, this is something that happens, Right? It's something that we accept, and the sooner we accept it, the better off we are. Look at what James says in chapter 1. Apostle James says this, verse, reading from verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If you've recently suffered something, if you're chronically suffering pain, I want you to know that it will do its job 
as you grow, grow older and mature in the faith, there will be a point where you will be lacking nothing. You'll be perfected into the image of our very Lord as we cr cross over into that threshold space from the humanity being you know, absorbed into his divinity. Many of us here live with this kind of cultivated softness that keeps us dreading life in what Paul might call timidity. A few weeks ago, I pointed out in, our, in the message, there's a safetyism. There's a safetyism in our culture. We exalt safety above everything else. And that only feeds fear if we're not being safe. You know? Just recently, I came across an article that talks about how, how conscientious we are in, about our hygiene and our clean, cleanliness might actually, paradoxically, making our immune system weaker because we're so, you know, living in such sterile environments, our, our immune system has not learned, you know, all the bacteria that are supposed to be, that we're supposed to become acquainted with in our environment. But if you're a Christian, our stance against control and through fear in this world is decidedly countercultural. If everybody's, you know, afraid because of this pandemic, we're supposed to stand and, and I mean, of course, being safe for other people but it, not being afraid, not being controlled by the fear, right? If we are a Christian, by virtue of our faith, because it, our faith has conquered fear of death, because our Lord conquered death itself, then suffering too should be something we can accept and dismantle. A lot of times, the physical sufferings that we go through is not as bad as the anxiety about the fear. I'll give you a good example. You guys are probably familiar with it better than me. Um, going to the dentist. <laughs> going to the dentist is a dreadful thing because when you go there, you know, the whole entire thing is unpleasant. You know, they, they uh, gouge your, your, your mouth open like a fish and, and they, uh, they have to put the Novocaine, even the, even the insertion of that fine needle is unpleasant. And then when you're like being drilled into, it's just a, just a hor horrendous feeling. But after you're done with the procedure, you're able to chew food again without wincing at every time you're chewing the food, right? It's something that we have to be able to accept and that we have to dismantle by going through it. As we go through it, it becomes, it loses its power and grip over us. So afraid of suffering, why? Why are we so afraid of suffering? And uh, this probably won't go easy over with my wife, but I'm going to use this as, a, as an example. I mean, it's told as a joke, but in marriage... Marriage is an, as an example of suffering, right? In marriage, Adam, pay attention. There are three rings. Number one, the engagement ring, right? Adam just gave his, his lovely uh, wife-to-be bow engagement ring. The second ring is the wedding ring, right? You guess what the third ring is? I'm sure you've heard it before. It's suffering. Ha <laughs> ha. Have you guys ever heard that before? The engagement ring, wedding ring, and suffering. I mean... If you are not married, you don't understand what that means. But if you're married, yeah, you go, yeah, that's, that's pretty wise. That's pretty wise. I get it, you know. Definition of love has been, for many people, long-suffering. That's what it is. Love is long-suffering. When you are bound together in a house church with the group that seems, I mean, you're just doing it. Half of the time, you're, you're just trying to withstand the tedium of doing it every week. It's tedious. Uh, recently, because thanks to the coronavirus, our family is now intact together as one unit, 
with my son and my daughter. We do this, uh, we have our family service every, every Sunday. There are some Sundays where after I come back from church, I go, oh, man, Lord, can't, can't I just take a, just one day break? There's those days, but you, you still do it anyway in your faithfulness because it's worth it. It's worth it. In, mar- in marriage, very often, you are, suffer- you are to suffer each other. You are to suffer each other. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were reading this book, The Meaning of Marriage by Pastor Tim and his wife, Kathy Keller. And he summarized it, he summarized it beautifully in two words. Gospel enactment. The way God has planned for a man and a, a wife to live out the rest of their their God-given lives together, physically on this earth, that he calls it gospel enactment. By your willingness to stick together and to find gratitude for each other, you notice the presence of the living Jesus who fills your life with his, with your life with, your, with his grace. That's what you want to tap into every time we're being church together. Uh, there is no relationship that demands more transparency than a marriage. There's there's things that you could hide from people from church because you don't live with them. But if you're sharing the same space proximo, pro, in proximity, in close proximity, there's not, there's not much that you can hide from them, right? Especially if you have a wife that's very, very sharp. If you have a husband that's very sharp and intuitive, right? When you suffer the onsets of aches and pains of middle age, as my poor wife sometimes has to tolerate, tolerate my incessant gassiness. <laughs> I got a lot of gas these days. You know, I don't know why I'm sharing this from the pulpit, but well, she, she suffers through it. As we go through these things together, you grow in what? In bond. You grow in bond. And through this bond, you also grow in faith. You grow in faith of the Lord. Many a days when you are living together, we make each other look to the Lord. And then as we get closer to the Lord, our relationship gets closer. Let me share with you another example about how suffering sometimes is this glue. Uh, this is a cultural example. It's more, more common among Korean men. When you, when you get a group of Korean men sitting together, and one Korean man starts talking about his heydays during the military, immediately a barrage of stories come out. From others, they reminisce nostalgically. Oh, when I was a young man, I did this, I did that. One day, my superior beat me up for no reason. You know, with the the army boots, he he stepped on this and that. You know, oh, one day uh, I had some eat. I had eaten some ill prepared uh, food from the mess hall. The cook was, you know, <laughs> he he had he had made food with uh, bad kong number. You know, bean sprouts that went bad. And then, and guess what? After they share their stories, immediately they become buddy buddies. They become really close together. So even, even if, if, if even past sufferings bring that they were not together in, it brings people together because the stories, when you go through a particular hardship together uh, in the present hardship, it is definitely one to, to tighten the bonds of, of a family, a house church, or even an entire church, and even a whole community. I don't know if you remember... Were you guys alive? Some of you were not alive during 9-11, were you? When the 9-11 thing happened? All of New York became, uh, it was unified as one family. We're bound together in our commitment to live a holy life. What we could call joy in the midst of suffering. That's what the holy life is. What, What the whole world is enjoying and relishing in, we're able to just say, you know what, 
that's not that great. Whatever you guys are exalting and cherishing over there, that's not that great. When I, when I compare it to the Lord that I have in my heart, Lord Jesus, that is, is the reigning uh, Lord of my life. Not a life that is dedicated to, uh, dedicated to pleasing ourselves, but one that is dedicated to giving unto others. Sometimes until it hurts. We remember what the, the Lord says, you know, that fellow gave out of his abundance, but, uh, but that widow, the poor widow gave the two mites um, and she gave all that she had. Right? Now, if we pay attention, um, if, we, if, if people come to know Christ in our giving and in our, maybe even in our sufferings, even in our, our life, we'll find that it's all worth it. It is all worth it in the end because that was the very thing that was giving our lives purpose. Not your accomplishments, not the goals that you have set up when you were younger, but when the Lord is using you and your story so that some other hopeless creature out there was able to look up and then, and then to receive, to have the desire to receive the Lord, man, then you, you know the legacy that you're being a part of is, is a precious, precious strand of thing. It's like, it's like the most precious an absolutely critical information that is being delivered to the person that needs it at the absolutely most ne uh, necessary time. Uh, in verse 9, Paul says something peculiar, and this is definitely metaphysical. I'm going to go into something that's metaphysical, defining, defining reality in, within the scope of something that goes beyond physical. He has saved us and called us into a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time. Paul often uses language to describe a reality that's difficult to conceive in our own minds, primarily because our minds are accustomed to being constrained in time. We only can relate our own experiences in the construct of time, past, present, and future. What Paul is trying to say it's before the beginning of time. What does he mean by that? He's speaking of a state of grace that's timeless, not confined in time. That grace was, that was pre-existence, pre-existent before even the, the making of all the universe. If you refer to John 1, John 1 talks about in the beginning there was the Word, right? The Word was with God and the Word was God. The principle by which, by which everything has been created in this universe this logos is inclusive of the grace, you know, the forgiveness, the mercy. Just as the sins that you committed in the past have been forgiven even before you knew Jesus in your own timeline, Jesus knew you and those who belong to him even before time was created, before the creation of the world or this universe which takes place in time, this grace had been given to us. What does that mean? What does it amount to? It can only mean that eternal life has been granted to us and revealed through Jesus Christ. Eternal life given to us through Jesus Christ. Another way of saying this would be that in Christ, you had always been. It's not like eventually we get to eternity, but when you're in Christ, you're already in eternity. You'd always been. He always knew you, even though we're just barely getting to know ourselves in this life. Next week, um, we have a very special occasion, as mentioned in our announcements. One of our shepherds, Eric Cho, will finally be 
officially baptized by immersion in our church. He'd been serving Bangkok Church for what? About since almost a year, right? Is it like 10 months now? About 10 months. So he'll be immersed in water. I'm going to dunk him. And this symbolizes his death with Jesus. When I bring him back up from the water, this will mean to join Jesus in eternal life. And we cannot fathom an eternal life without Jesus. Because any conception of such a thing, any conception of an eternal life without Jesus, it can only wind up as a description of hell. Sit there and, and try, to, try to imagine in your mind. Sit there. Take one, time, one day and do your little philosophizing and, and imagine eternity without Jesus. How can that be a heaven? Right? Any eternity without Jesus, it can only be hell is basically what I'm saying. Right? Our third and final point that lands on, the, on the, what the whole book of Acts was about and what this whole letter to Timothy is and what the, Paul's life ended up meaning and what we hope our lives will amount to at the end of it is the person of Jesus Christ. Number three, if you will share that screen with Jesus' relationship to death. Jesus is death's destroyer. <laughs> I love that, that phraseology. I love that. Jesus is death destroyer. And, uh, you know, when we, when we look at that word to destroy, we think of destructive power like a nuclear atom bomb. <laughs> you know, something explosive happening, right? But the way the Lord destroys death is far more elegant than the way we conceive in our imagination. I'm going to go through a little word study. I want you to think with me for a moment. Death is not something that a person suffers at the end of his or her life. That's what, that's what we think, right? Death is something that we suffer at the end of the life. It's not. Death is something that we suffer all our lives. We suffer the fact that death exists. The fact that it exists, it, it troubles us. We suffer the fact that it separates us from those loved ones that we'll never, we will not see again in this physical state. We suffer the impermanence of the earthly life and the fears and desires due to this end up controlling our destiny. That is, that is a state of the, of, the, of the life of sin in, in a summary account. It, it's governed by the, the fear of death. It's governed by death. It is, it is controlled by death. At some level in our subconscious, we have the instinct of self-preservation that governs us, but we are actually, in this case, liberated from that. What does Paul say in Romans 6, verse 23? Death is the wages of sin, right? Now, when we look at how Paul describes Jesus as a destroyer of death, this word destroy is from the Greek word katagreo, katagreo. And then I'll just read you the, uh, the, many, the semantic range. To render idle, unemployed, inactive, inoperative. To cause a person or thing, in this case death, to have no further efficiency. To deprive of force, influence, or power. To cause, to seize, to put an end to to do away with, to annul, you know, to cancel, to abolish, to cease, to pass away, to be done away, to be severed from, separated from, discharged from, lose from anyone, to terminate all intercourse with one. So when, when Jesus is the one that destroys death, you know, death is laid off, basically. Death no longer has the influence that it once did in our lives. Hence, 
Paul is able to say in 1 Corinthians 15-55, oh, where, oh, death is your sting? Where, oh, death is your victory? He can say that. We're not talking about a denial of death because just the other day, Pastor Daniel and our staff had paid a visit to the cemetery to, to pay our respects to uh, our, our, uh, our late pastor, Pastor Lee, right? We've, rather than denying death, what Paul says is, we face it all day long. He's actually quoting scripture. We face it all day long as we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We're facing it all day long. But we accept death, not granting it the final word. We don't give death the final word. As long as I am in Christ, the fear of death cannot motivate me to do evil nor cause suffering on other people. That is, that is the, the Christian life. If you are a Christian, this is what we will grow into. Maybe some of us are still afraid of death. I mean, you know, there's no condemnation in that. It's a very natural thing. Not because of your incredible tolerance to pain or your heroic bravery. We're not going to grow into those things because of those things. But, you know, you can wince when you stub your toe and you can cower and shiver when, when the, chill, the weather is cold. But because Christ lives in you, in your chest beats the heart of a lion. And your soul is secure as sheep in the hands of the good shepherd. That is the peace that we're able to enjoy that the people of the world cannot fabricate on their own. They have their artists that are groping blindly at other things and they will never ever come close to the effect that the Lord has on us on any ordinary Sunday. Paul's sense of self is derived from the task that was given to him. He was a herald. He was a messenger. You know, he was the one that went out there and he shouted out the good news of the gospel. And he was an apostle. He was sent. He was sent to, to, to share this gospel to other people that did not know or have not heard of it yet. And he was a teacher of it. He was a teacher who unlocks the hidden mystery to life that had been that had been anticipated for such a long time encoded into the Old Testament scriptures of the Jewish people, right? One that was conceived by grace even before the creation of time. Are you I mean we have to sit there and go, are you serious? That's can anybody can anybody just Get all that and just stay put? How can, we, how can we have that message in us? And how can we have that living in us? How can we have that, how can we have that fire burning in us and still stay seated for a moment when you, when you have that? Of course, we see that Paul wasn't seated. He was doing everything he could. He was going through storms. He was being chained. He, he had this passion that was relentless for the gospel. How are we not at the edge of our seats or like a racehorse behind the lines, ready to launch into a full sprint. How, how are we so lackadaisical? It's the question. Paul has been the guardian of this, of, of this life-giving truth, and he now, by the way of this letter, wants to pass it on to Timothy, his spiritual son. What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you Guarded with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. 
So we don't mess around with the gospel. We don't trifle. We keep it pure because it is life-giving and it is life-keeping. Whenever you come to hear the word of God, you have to have discerning ears. You have to know what is being handed to you. What is being filtered down to you? Is it the pure gospel and not some other thing that is going to veer my attention away from Christ? This is the fourth and final point. And again, it refers to Jesus. If it's not about Jesus, it's, it's really about nothing. Um, Jesus' relationship to us. He is the love that makes immortality possible. Remember what I shared with you. I mean, if you do an exercise, in, a philosophical exercise in your mind where you can think of when you can conceive of an eternity, eternity, just going on and on and on without Jesus. We can only fathom the possibility of eternal life because of the person of Jesus Christ. You know, when you ever experience love in your heart, whether it is the love of a mother that's being showered upon her child, or whether it's the love of two, like, you know, a spouse, love of the wife towards her husband, and then the husband towards his wife, or maybe even before marriage, you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you have your love towards that special somebody. When you're experiencing that love, when you, whether in the receiving end of it or giving end of it, you want that to last forever. And that love is really made possible by the person that personifies it. He is the author of love. He is love itself. God is love, right? Without, without Jesus, we cannot fathom eternal life. And he is the one that has brought it to, the, to us on a, on, a golden pla- on a golden platter. He is the love that brought immortality to be, to be made possible in our minds. God has placed eternity in our hearts, right? Now, because of Jesus, we're able to conceive and think and, and welcome and, and to anticipate life eternal. Our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, the grace that was there before time, has broken into human timeline and with himself has brought for the rest of us the possibility for eternal life. I'm going to close. I'm going to borrow some heavy hitters words. You guys know Martin Luther King Jr., right? You've heard of him. This is what he writes in his his book, uh, Strength to Love. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Death cannot abolish death. Only life can do that. That's my own. Jesus is the truth. He is the way and the light. If your life has Jesus in it, then you have something that's worth keeping forever. Amen? May it be the case that the trajectory of Paul's life, it wasn't always rosy. He had folks that abandoned him. He had folks that left him, deserted him. And then he had folks that refreshed him. That's the way of the Christian life. It's not always good. There will be some hard times. But as we continue on and keep through it, you will see that as time goes by, it'll be, it's worth only gets amasses more and more value than we were able to perceive before. Let us close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to hear from uh, one of the precious letters that Paul writes to Timothy, the first part of it. Um, as he comes to the growing awareness that he must move on uh, to be with you, Lord. And uh, we thank you that the gospel has such a power that it can dispel the, the most nagging fears about death and suffering. 
And because we've accepted it, as we've received it anew, we're able to roll with the, the punches. We're able to roll with the life and uh, just anticipate that every day that goes by, every hour that passes, every moment that we live out together is just one step closer to you being uh, with us in your fullness. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and that you would ignite that fire and keep fanning into flame this passion and that it would not die out. And that if there is a candle that's, that's flickering in the, in the darkness, that you would not snuff it out, but that you would fan it again into flame. That we would see souls becoming excited again, anew, for the gospel. That we would see people being confident of the life that is entrusted to them. It will be used for your mighty purposes. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now at this time, we'll have a time of praise and response, and after which we have a time of offering.